Okay. So the first thing I want to talk about is very, 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 very important. And I think we'll start today's practice with this discussion and then we'll go into our practice. So the first thing to say then is why is it that we have such high ideals in spiritual life? And what's the reason we stress renunciation so much? And given that you understand why these ideals are important metaphysically and also quite pragmatically, um, then we have to ask another question. What do I do when I fall short of them? You know, because these ideals are no nonsense. They're pretty high up there and they're demanding a level of moral excellence, a level of uh, purity that is for most of us, at, at least in the beginning, rather unattainable. And in the attempt of trying to live according to these high ideals, we'll invariably fall short. Time and time again, we'll fail. So what do we do? What do we do when we fail to meet the ideals that we set for ourselves, that are placed before us by the masters who have come before? How do we bounce back from that? How do we understand this? Like, how do we treat ourselves after each successive fall? How do we dust up, dust off, get up and move on? That's what I want to talk about first before we start practicing. Because what I want to do before our Hatha Yoga practice is to compare um, this technique of rebalancing with the very literal rebalancing that you do during a standing balancing pose, like uh, Virabhadrasana 3 or even something as simple as tree pose, Rikshasana. You know, like those poses are balancing poses. They're difficult to get into and they're difficult to hold. And so holding a balancing pose, using the strength of the body to stabilize yourself in that pose is not very different from what we're doing in a moral sense, in a spiritual sense, in our practice. And then invariably we fall down, right? We fall down from tree pose. We fall down from warrior three. We fall down from Ardha Chandrasana, half lotus. But then what do we do? At that point, do we say, I'm a failure. I'm so terrible. I must be horribly unsuited for the practice of Hatha yoga. Therefore, I'm going to stop and never get on the mat again. Well, sometimes that is what happens. Some people do fall down one too many times and they're like, done. okay, that's it. I'm done. I'm never practicing Hatha yoga again. But no, right? Most of us, when we fall down, we get back up. We enter the pose once more. And we attempt as hard as we can to refine the pose, find the pose again. So it's not that different. And that's kind of what I wanted to talk about before we practice. Okay. So what do you do when you fall down from your high ideals? But first, before that, why are spiritual ideals so high to begin with? What ideals are we even talking about? You know, Shankara said that to try to reach enlightenment um, and at the same time, look for satisfaction in the world is a lot like trying to cross a river, holding on to a crocodile mistaking it for driftwood. <laughs> Needless to say, that's a very precarious position to be in. Looking to a crocodile for safety. It's going to eat you. Remember how last week we discussed Shankara's backstory about how he was being dragged into the water as a crocodile and he asked his mom's blessings to be a monk and all of that. So I think there's a particular pathos to this story about the crocodile. So he's saying something the Christ would also say many, many years before him. The Christ said, you can't serve two masters. You can't love both God and Mammon. No, you can't serve the divine and at the same time be attached to the world. And the Christ message of renunciation was uncompromising, right? He preached perfect greedlessness. It's harder for a rich man to pass through the eye of a needle than like a camel. No, it'd be easier for a camel. Sorry, I mangled that. It would be easier for camels to pass through the eye of the needle than it would be for those attached to wealth to attain to lasting peace. Right? It's very difficult to be truly peaceful, to be truly enlightened if you're hankering after wealth to any degree. So he's preaching a message of complete renunciation of greed. Not only that, he's preaching a message of complete renunciation of lust. He says, he whosoever looks upon a woman as a woman has already committed adultery in his mind. And so he's like arguing that if you see someone as a body, 
if you see them as a means for the gratification of the senses, and even if you experience lust in much subtler ways, like the desire for emotional intimacy or the desire for intellectual intimacy, even then that setting up of a duality, I'm over here and they're over there and they have something that will complete me, right? That alone is for the Christ, something you have to renounce. You have to renounce lust. You have to renounce greed. You have to renounce lust. And not only that, you have to live a life of complete surrender in the formless absolute and a life of complete service. Whatever you do to the least of me, that you do unto me. So notice the Christ's message is renunciation and service. Renounce lust, renounce greed, renounce the world, live entirely for God and serve everyone else as God. That's the message of the Christ. And by the way, why should you renounce the world? According to the Christ, it's because if you place your treasure where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break in and steal, you're going to get into trouble. You see, he's saying everything in the world, from the pleasures of the senses to the wealth and security that you get from power, name, fame, etc., all of that corrupts. Moth and rust will corrupt it. It changes. It doesn't last. The, the highest, most beautiful pleasure in the world comes and goes just like that. It corrupts. Moth and rust doth corrupts it. And things can take it away. Thieves, meaning the thief of time primarily, will take it away from you. So you like a beautiful body? Just wait. Just wait. Time will take that away from you. You love your loved ones? Just wait. Time will take you away from them or them away from you. Just wait. This is the truth. If you love your house, wait. You know, if you, these things all come and go. Everything you love in the world comes and goes. Uh, when will we wake up to the truth of that? So the Christ is saying, be careful. If you place your treasure there, you're in trouble. Okay, and the Buddha would say the same thing. The body changes, the mind changes, the world changes. So don't lay up your treasures where change will take it away. Okay, so thus, thus we've explained like some really high ideals. Why is this the case though? Three levels of analysis. The first is, and this is important, whatever you take to be real, okay, whatever you take to be true, whatever you take to be permanent, that thing that you took to be real, that thing will draw your whole being, will absorb your whole mind, and will attract your whole feeling. And this is the fact. If you think you will be lastingly fulfilled from acquiring wealth, then the pursuit of wealth will demand all of your time and all of your attention. It will attract your whole feeling. It will absorb your mind and it will draw your whole being. If you think pleasure is real, if you think you will be lastingly fulfilled from pursuing pleasure and partying and all of that, then most of your time and energy will go to looking for the next big rave, looking for the next high, looking for the next way to get off. You see, if you think pleasure is the ultimate goal of life, that will attract your whole being, will absorb your whole mind, and will draw your whole feeling. You know. So if you think pleasure is real, if you think wealth is real, now what if you think name and fame is real? If you think you can be lastingly fulfilled from like making your name in the world or something, then that will take up all of your time. You see, the Christ was very clear. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. So if your treasure is that which moth and rust doth corrupt, if your treasure is that which the thief of time will break in and steal, then your whole heart will go there. When the Christ says heart, often he means your attention, your love, your care, your time. You know, you give your time to that which you love. So your heart, your attention will go to that treasure which changes, which corrupts, which is intransient, which is not eternal. So be careful. The first risk of not renouncing the world is that if you try to do spirituality and you try to live a worldly life, you will find that the world will win. Your time will go there. <laughs> you just won't have time for spiritual practice. Like already, you took time out of your day to practice some yoga. That's a big ask, you know. Um, and I'm sure a lot of you understand, like when you're in school and you're doing work and stuff, it's almost an impossible ask to take this time for yourself, to practice, to meditate, to contemplate, right? The more busy you become, 
meaning the more involved you become with the world, the less time you'll have for spiritual practice. So it's just a very simple matter of logistics. You won't have time to meditate. You won't have time to study deeply. You won't have time to uh, develop and grow spiritually. That's the first reason. The second reason is um, because what you're approaching in spirituality is the formless existence. You are trying to live as spirit. That's what spirituality is. Make no mistake. You know, spirituality is the attempt to live according to your true nature, which is not as a body, which is not as a mind, which is pure, immortal, eternal spirit. Body dies, mind changes, spirit is eternal. That's what you're looking for. You're on a grail quest for the eternal essence nature. Okay, so with this, in this regard, I'm going to read you something from Swami Ashokananda. It's from a talk that he gave, transcribed in the book called Ascent to Spiritual Illumination. So look at what Sri, uh, Swami Ashokananda is saying. He's saying, um, now, this is about meditating on the formless God, perceiving the formless God. If you want to come close to God, this is the condition. He says, how do you reach that state? The state whereby you perceive the formless God. He says, you live formlessly. You do not care for anything that has form. You don't care for a steak dinner. You don't care for nice clothes, nor do you care for nice faces. All the things that have form towards which our senses go, you don't care for any of those things. Yet you exist. This is called formless existence. You are living formlessly. If you do it, then you will feel that infinite formless being. The formless God is everywhere and you will directly perceive him. You do it through utter renunciation. That is to say, you don't want anything except God. That renunciation takes time to acquire. As a Hindu and a believer in reincarnation, I would say it takes many lives to reach that state. Little by little in the previous lives, you have given up things. And then in this life, that renunciation becomes complete. You don't want anything that has form. And therefore, you are able to perceive the formless God directly. But if you cannot perceive him directly, then, as I said, you meditate on him through symbols. Okay, and then he goes on to talk about kind of other ways to meditate on God with form. Anyway, point here being, if your goal is the absolute Brahman, the formless divine, then you must learn to live formlessly. You must learn to identify with the spirit, the formless spirit that you are. Not only that, you must see others as that too. You can't see them as bodies. Oh, that's a body will bring me pleasure. You can't see them as mind. Oh, that's a mind. I can gain some benefit from associating with that mind. No, if you see others as bodies and minds, it's because you see yourself as a body and mind. Be very careful. What you see in others is what you will see in yourself. You know, you say, oh, that's a horrible person. Why? Because you're struggling with your own sense of guilt regarding that. Be careful. If you see others as bodies, you're doomed to see yourself as a body too. As long as there's lust, you will never be able to regard yourself as formless spirit because you still think you're a body. As long as you see other people as personalities that can be leveraged for personal gain, you will never stop identifying with your mind. You will always be a victim to depressions, anxieties, like traumas. It's in the mind, right? So if you see others as minds, you too will be a mind. This is why uh, such stress is placed on renunciation. You cannot ultimately attain the highest in spiritual life as long as you hold on to your notions of being a body and mind. Okay, so now what? This is pretty big ask, right? It's like, damn, maybe I just haven't experienced it yet. Maybe I need to go out and make the money to realize it's not satisfying. Maybe I still need to do some stuff in the world. That's true. That's true. Go out and do that. This message is not for those who still feel like there's something in the world worth attaining. Do it. Do it. And then come back here for the cure, as Sri Ramakrishna would say. (laughs) This message is for those uh, uh, who are now ready to live a life completely for spirituality, right? Having sensed the limitations of the world. But for those groups of people, What's going to happen when you try is that we're going, we're going to fail, right? Like it's going to happen. We're going to set these high ideals and we're going to fail in a variety of ways. One way to fail is to say, I'm going to practice. And then you don't. You say, I'm going to practice three times a day. I'm going to meditate one hour, thrice a day. doesn't happen. You don't make it to the mat. You maybe make it to the mat for like five minutes. And then, 
So that's one way that we fall short of our ideal. In this case, our ideal was a matter of logistics and of time. I, it, I endeavor to spend this much time on my personal spiritual practice. That's my ideal. That's the first one. And oftentimes we fall short because the world, again, attracts our whole being, draws our whole mind and absorbs our whole feeling. So we're busy. We're too busy to practice. We don't get the time to do those things that are truly valuable to us. Okay. That's one way to fall off the horse. The second way to fall off the horse, to fail to live formlessly, to become overly attached to the senses, to regard others as bodies and therefore uh, commit the violence of lust, to regard others as minds and therefore commit the violence of separation. All of these ways are also ways in which we fall short of the ideal. Hmm? So given that we have high ideals, we must be prepared to fail uh, to meet them. So the next part of what we're going to talk about, what do we do? You know, now that we know these ideals are important to us, now that we know they're worth striving for, that we know that like living a life of ideals is preferable to living a life like listlessly wandering about in the world, you know, without any ideals. So this is good. But what do we do when we feel like we've fallen short when we failed? The answer is this. There's no problem here insofar as you don't bring down the ideal, right? Like if you fall short of an ideal, the problem is not with the ideal. You don't say, oh, it's too idealistic. It's too high. So let me bring down the ideal. Only insofar as you bring down the ideal, only to that degree have you really actually failed. If you bring down the ideal, then all you're doing is making excuses for your shortcomings, right? then progress in spiritual life is very difficult because we're no longer holding ourselves to our ideals. We're bringing our, our, our ideals down to us, which is what has happened, right? That's how spirituality becomes religion. That's how slowly, slowly, slowly the message of the Christ gets used for money, for power, for social control. That's how slowly, slowly, slowly all these wonderful traditions premised on renunciation become excuses for power, pleasure, and wealth. Like the ideal keeps coming down. The goalpost keeps getting brought closer and closer and closer to you. Don't do that. That's like saying, oh, I couldn't do tree pose. I couldn't stand and balance in tree pose. So I won't do tree pose. I'll just sit on the floor and say, that's tree pose. It's not. Tree pose is tree pose, right? Sitting on the floor and pretending like that is tree pose is not tree pose. <laughs> but that's what we do. We pretend our materiality is spirituality. Because we're too afraid to live by high ideals, we bring the ideals down. That is the only failure there is, right? If you keep your ideals where they are, if you say, okay, I see why there's a metaphysical necessity for these ideals. If you keep your ideals where they are, then you must also recognize that you won't always meet them. And that's okay. The ideal is still there. The ideal is waiting for you. And every day you perhaps get gradually closer. You fall off the wagon, you get back on the wagon and you're kind with yourself because you know, this is a gradual process. You know, this is something that happens maybe over an entire lifetime, if not several lifetimes. Every time you make a little progress, that ought to be celebrated. Every time you fall short, that ought to be compassionately understood as part of the process of living for high ideals. After all, you're living for the highest possible human ideals. Be gentle with yourself when you fall short of them. You're trying, and that's what matters. You're not bringing the ideal down. Neither are you moralizing, condescending, or punishing yourself from failing to meet what are literally superhuman ideals. Basically, we're asking you to go against everything that 13.7 billion years of evolution has programmed into you. Okay, it's no small ask. So be gentle, be kind with yourself. No, don't bring the ideal down. Don't punish yourself for not meeting that ideal. Every day, gradually work towards that ideal. How do you do that? Through practice, through practice and through discernment. You know, by, by having wisdom talks like this, we like ask, why are these ideals valuable? Why should they be ideals? Question the ideal first. And once you've questioned the ideal thoroughly, once you're ready to accept the ideal, then live your utmost best for that ideal, according to that ideal. 
Okay. So how do we compare this to our Hatha yoga practice? It's literally the same thing. Say you're trying a pose. Your ideal is to, let's say, be in tree pose. You want to be in tree pose for, I don't know, five minutes. That's your ideal, right? Remember, your ideal is to practice three times a day, meditating one hour each time. Your ideal might have been to regard other people as spirit, not as bodies, and therefore serve them selflessly as an act of worship. Your ideal might have been to be patient and not angry. Your ideal might have been to not be greedy, all of that. It's no different from saying my ideal is to stand in tree pose for five minutes. Can you see how in principle, at least it's the same? So now say you've never practiced that pose before. We'll do it today. You stand in tree pose. You're going to wobble. There'll be a lot of wobbling going on. That's to be expected. Who comes into tree pose right away from the very beginning? Maybe if you're like Shuka Deva or something, right? If you're like a great sage who comes out of the womb without any Maya, maybe then. But short of being Shuka Deva, sort of being an, short of being an avatar, like short of being any of these great beings, as human, ordinary human beings, um, we're going to wobble. Anybody's going to wobble. Can you imagine saying to a baby, hey, you should be able to ride a two-wheeled bicycle without any training wheels whatsoever. And more importantly, you can never fall ever. Can you imagine saying to a skateboarder, you can never fall ever, but I want you to achieve a perfect kickflip while you grind on this rail and all the often I'm just making up names that I think sound skateboardy. I don't know if any of these are actual skateboard terms, but anyway, it would be ridiculous, right? To say to a skateboarder, to a person learning to ride the bicycle, to a person learning to swim and to a person learning to attempt to do rickshaw for the first time, that they should immediately be able to do the pose then and there in perfect balance without any falling or wobbling. That would be ridiculous. So expect some wobbling, expect some falling. Now say you fall out of rickshasana. What do you do? Some people might say, I will never practice yoga again. Good. For that person, it's good that they leave now <laughs> because it's not going to get any easier. If you can't deal with the wobble of rickshasana, how will you deal with, I don't know, the wobble of shirshasana or the wobble of ardha pincha mayurasana or something like that? Okay. If you can't stand the heat in the kitchen, out, 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 out. Come back next life. I'll be waiting for you. We'll all be waiting for you. No rush. Okay, so if they decide to leave at that point, good, that's fine. Now, say they decide to stay. What are they going to do? They fall off the rickshasana. They're going to try again. And every subsequent attempt, they get closer and closer to holding the pose, right? Closer and closer and closer every day. They're trying their best. And some days were worse than yesterday. So don't expect this to be linear. Some days for various reasons, you might just be off your game that day. And that day was not as good as last week. Of course, it's not a linear process at all. But every day you try it. I have to ask this. Why does the person keep trying? Hmm? What is the value of trying to meet an ideal? The, and and my, my feeling is that the only reason why the person stays with it is because it's ennobling. It's beautiful. It's meaningful. And it's fun. Even though it's difficult, the difficulty of trying to do rikshasana is better than the difficulty of not trying to do rikshasana. Ultimately, there are two ways to suffer. Either you suffer in the world or you suffer in spiritual life. And the Christ said, choose this suffering. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. You know, the, the world, the way you will suffer in the world is much, much fiercer than how you will actually struggle in spiritual life. Struggle is good. So why do you do it? Because it's fun. Because spiritual life is fun. Because it ennobles you. It makes you feel strong. It feels strong to fail and try again. Now, this is most important. One day, the pose will come. One day, you'll just be able to do it. You'll just find yourself standing in Rikshasana. Not only for five minutes, you'll be able to have breakfast cereal there. You'll be like watching TV. I don't, I don't know if at that point you'll be watching TV way far in your spiritual life, but maybe you're there like watching TV, eating breakfast cereals, like standing in Rikshasana. And you're like, oh yeah, cool. And then someone else will see you do it and they'll be like, oh my God, that's impossible. How can a person live lustlessly and greedlessly? How can a person practice thrice a day, three hours a day? How did they do that? I can't do that. And then you look at them and you smile because you knew where you were too. 
that you were also at the place where you never thought it was possible for you to do Rick Shostman. Okay. I should have chosen a harder pose like Shir Shasana or something. I feel like this pose is too, too basic and too easy for this point to really get across, but you get it in principle. So the final thing I want to say is the role of grace. Thus far, I've been talking about self-effort. Choose an ideal, live according to that ideal every day, gradually approach that ideal, forgive yourself for falling short. When that day comes, and anybody who's practiced Hatha Yoga knows this, when that blessed day comes where you suddenly have a pose, do you notice that it kind of just happens suddenly like by itself? Haven't you noticed, like, say, Pincha Mayurasana? I remember I, I was struggling to do Pincha Mayurasana for a while, uh, feather peacock, that arm balance. And then one day it just happened in the body. I was like, whoa, it's like a gift. When, when you learn a new yoga pose, it's like a gift. Who gave you that gift if not the divine? It's ultimately the grace of God. It's the grace of God that you found yourself before high ideals. It's the grace of God that you understood why those ideals were important in spiritual life. It's the grace of God that you have the self-respect, the courage, and the grit to live according to those ideals. It's the grace of God that you can forgive yourself for falling short of those ideals. And ultimately, it is the grace of God that you live those ideals. You know, So at the end of the day, all of this is grace. But you know what God's grace is? Is your self-effort. God's grace manifests most in your willingness to walk the, the path. Don't just believe in God. Live for God. Don't believe in the Christ. Follow the Christ. Walk in the way of the Christ. You know, live according to their example. What it means to be spiritual is to make as your practice what comes naturally to the Buddha, to Rama, to Krishna, to the Christ, to Ramakrishna. All right. So I hope then, as we practice today, you'll consider this practice, this Hatha Yoga practice, not just as a way to condition the body. Think of it as a metaphor for spirituality as a whole. We'll do, I think, four balancing poses today. And in each one, uh, each one hopefully will be more challenging than the next. In each one, uh, just see where you are. Be so compassionate when you fail to meet it. And I, I hope, I'm looking around the room and everyone looks like a pretty developed Hatha Yogi. So I don't, I don't know if this experiment will work, but I hope that you will fall together. I hope that we'll like eat shit together, right? Trying some of these poses. Um, at least some of you just pretend for me, right? Like pretend to wobble a bit. So I feel like <laughs> the pedagogy is working. <laughs> but like, let's struggle and let's notice that it's fun to struggle, that it's fun, that it's meaningful to struggle. And I'm, I'm going to close with this. One Swami Yateshwarananda asked Swami Brahmananda for advice. You know, Swami Brahmananda was a man of very few words. Swami Brahmanandaji, he, he taught more with his being than with his lectures. He was Sri Ramakrishna's spiritual son. So something like Jesus's foremost disciple, you know, like Mary Magdalene or something like that. So Swami Brahmananda is seen as the embodiment of the avatara himself. Like Mary Magdalene was the ultimate foremost disciple of Jesus by some accounts. So what did Swami Brahmananda have to say to Swami Yatishwaranda, then a young novice monk who was learning to live the highest ideals of spiritual life? He asked him, you know, Give me some advice. Swami Brahmananda, in his own inimical way, just said one word thrice. <laughs> Can you guess what that word is? Maybe, maybe thus far in the lecture, some words come to mind. <laughs> the word is struggle. He said it thrice. Struggle, struggle, struggle. Hmm. Struggle. Spiritual life is struggle. Therein lies its value. All right. So let's practice, friends. <laughs> 